So one of my favorite sports movies of all time is The Natural. Some of you younger people may never have heard of this movie. It came out in the late 80s, which I realize is a long time ago to some people. The Natural is about a baseball player, a young, a young baseball player, who was coming up through the minor leagues, tearing through the minor leagues, in, I think, somewhere around the 30s or 40s. And every scout believed that this, this guy, his name was Roy Hobbs, had the potential to be the greatest baseball player who ever lived. He was starting to make a name for himself. But before he could reach the major leagues, he had encountered a major setback. And I don't want to give the movie away, but it took him over 10 years to recover from this setback. And he finally broke through into the major leagues. And all of the scouts' predictions were true. And the movie has one of the best endings you could imagine. I mean... The ending of this movie is so epic and memorable, and if you haven't seen it, you'll, you'll know what I mean if you see it. Just one of the happiest movies, one of the happiest endings that you might ever see in a movie. And I've watched this movie probably 20 times. I, I, I never get tired of seeing this movie. Vicky's watched it more times than she wanted to because I love this movie so much. <laughs> and so about a year ago, we were at Goodwill my family and I, because we go to Goodwill as much as we go to the grocery store. And I'm looking at the book section, which I always do, and I happen to see the natural book, the novel. I didn't even know it was based on a novel. I see this book. I pick it up. I'm like, what? It won a Pulitzer Prize in 1961. And I'm thinking, I've, I know that the book's going to be better than the movie because almost always is. So I go home and I start reading this book. In a few days, I've read the book. And it did not disappoint. One of the, a great novel. However, the ending was completely different than the movie. Completely different. It shocked me. In fact, it left me unsettled. It was anything but a happy ending. I had to go back and reread the last three pages like six times. Right there, I mean, I, I finished the book, and then I went back, and I finished it again, and again, and again. I'm like, what does this mean? How could this have happened? I, I couldn't stop thinking about it for days. It caused me to think about my life. It caused me to think about, you know, what might have happened to, to Roy Hobbs. It just left me very unsettled. And the movie, I mean, I got done watching the movie, and I felt great and went on with my day. The book was completely different. It was an ending I didn't expect. Now, if you could interview any one of Jesus, they, and you ask them what they thought about Jesus, in particular, Jesus' death and resurrection, every one of them, without exception, would tell you it was an ending we didn't expect. We didn't expect him to die. We didn't expect him to rise again. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. And today we're going to look at a resurrection text from the Gospel of Mark that is the least popular of all of the resurrection narratives. In fact, I would bet that many of you have never heard an Easter sermon from the Gospel of Mark that didn't include verses from other Gospels. This, this, all we're going to do today is look at the Gospel of Mark. We're not going to look at John's account or Matthew's or Luke's. We're not going to look into any of the other resurrection texts we're just going to let Mark's gospel speak for itself. I've never preached this text before. 
in 10 years of preaching. And so, and, and by the way, there's a reason for that. Mark, the reason is that Mark does not give us the ending that we expected. So what does he give us? Let's look at the text together from Mark chapter 15. We're going to pick this up in Mark chapter 15, verse 37, if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother, mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. In other words, there's this group of women who are watching the crucifixion from a distance. At least to begin with. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he had already died. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? In other words, they realized they would not be able to do this on their own. They have no idea how they're going to roll this stone away. And yet that doesn't keep them from going to see Jesus. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Now, before we read the last verse of the Gospel of Mark, which is verse 8, there's something here that we can't afford to miss. This young man who's sitting in the tomb, who's presumably some kind of angel, he tells the women, go tell his disciples and Peter. I don't know if you caught that. Why does he mention Peter by name? Why does he mention Peter's name? Why not just say, go tell the disciples? Peter's a disciple. Why, you know, why mention Peter by name? And, and I may be speculating here a little, but if you think about it, I mean, think, just think about this with me. If all the angel said was, go tell the disciples to meet Jesus in Galilee, Peter probably would have said, you guys go. I can't. He doesn't want to see me. Because if you will remember the last time that Jesus 
and Peter saw each other and looked into each other's eyes across the courtyard. Right after Peter denied even knowing Jesus, three times, Peter broke down and wept bitterly. In fact, we talked about that recently, and we talked about what kind of look did Jesus give Peter? Was it a look of condemnation? Was it a look of disappointment? And and I strongly believe that it was not. I believe it was a look of compassion, a look of forgiveness, a, a look of grace. And yet Peter needed a long time to recover from that. We know that. We know that from the, the end of the Gospel of John, Peter was still hurting. Jesus had to affirm Peter three times. And so Jesus knows that Peter, he, he knows that Peter's still hurting. He knows Peter is still agonizing over this total failure as a disciple. And so Jesus wants Peter to know that he wants to see him. If Peter has any doubts, the women can say, no, Peter, no. The man said you by name. He, your name was the only one he used. So why is that matter? Why does that matter? Why is that important? Peter messed up the most of all of the disciples. Peter was the one who was continually saying things that he later regretted and, and, and falling short of his own ambitions. His repentance will have to be the deepest. His understanding of grace will probably be the greatest. And is it any wonder why Peter becomes the most influential disciples of all of the disciples who stayed back in Jerusalem? He knew how weak he was. He knew how badly he had failed. And Jesus would use Peter's weakness to show his power. That's how the gospel works. That's not how the world works. It's not how religion works. Religion says that salvation is by strength and consistency. And religion says, I'm accepted by God to the degree that I live up to God's standards. So if I sin and if I fail, I got to start over. I got to get right with God again. I've lost my access to God. I've lost my standing with God. And I've got to work hard to get it back or to get back on track. Salvation's not for the weak, it's for the strong. That's what the world says. That's not the gospel. The gospel says that salvation is by grace, not by works. Salvation came through the weakness of the cross. Salvation comes to those who admit their weakness and embrace the foolishness of the cross. And that's good news for weak failures, isn't it? It's good news to people who've lost their dreams and fallen short of their goals and people who've ruined their lives. It's good news for adulterers. It's good news for addicts. It's good news for liars. It's good news for prisoners. It's good news for Peter. And so now let's look at how Mark ends his account of Jesus' life. The last verse. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Just so you know, that's how Mark ends his gospel. And we're going to come back to that in a couple minutes. Now earlier, um, Mark Spielman was up here and several times, and Scott included, they were saying, he is risen. And you guys said, that's right. Now, why don't the women say that? <laughs> I mean, the angel said, he has risen. Apparently, they weren't in on this. Instead, they are silent, speechless, bewildered, shocked, confused, afraid. 
And I want you to hear this because this is really important to the credibility of every historical account that we have of Jesus' resurrection. Even though these women had been following Jesus for a long time, including his disciples, even though Jesus, I mean, in the Gospel of Mark alone, I, I couldn't tell you the amount of times off the top of my head, many times Jesus said, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again on the third day. I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again on the third day. I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again on the third day. He said it over and over and over and over again. And yet, none of the disciples or these women were expecting to see Jesus alive, were they? On their way to the tomb, they're wondering, how are we going to roll the stone away so that we can anoint Jesus' dead body with these spices and perfumes? That's what they're worried about. They have no expectation whatsoever of seeing an empty tomb or of seeing Jesus alive. And what about the disciples? Where are they? Certainly, if the disciples had believed that Jesus was going to rise again, they would be there waiting, even if it was from a distance, watching. Don't you think, with Jesus saying this so many times, just one of the disciples might have been thinking, wait a minute. I remember, don't you remember all the times he said, I'm going to die and on the third day I'm going to rise again? Do you think, what, it's the third day. Do you think maybe we should go check out the tomb? <laughs> none of them, none of them even think that. They are locked, they've locked themselves in an upper room back in Jerusalem for fear of the Jews because they think that what happened to Jesus might happen to them. No one close to Jesus is expecting a resurrection. In fact, the angel has to tell the women, you will see, he's risen, he's not here, you will see him just as he told you. And the point is that Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus was just as inconceivable and unbelievable to the first century disciples as it is to modern people. The Greeks did not believe in a bodily resurrection. The ancient Jews did not believe that an individual could be raised from the dead. Even though these same disciples and the women had seen Lazarus come to life before their very eyes, they had trouble believing Jesus was really alive. Didn't expect it. Didn't even see it coming. And this makes me wonder, why would Mark choose to end the story there? Why? Why would you end the story there, I, even though your English translation, if you've got a Bible out, probably your English translation has 20 verses in Mark 16, right? And if it's a, your translation may very well say, uh, have, a, have a footnote or a parenthesis that says, verses 9 through 20 are not found in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts, right? It might say that, it might not. The truth is that every scholar agrees Mark did not write those last 11 verses. The last thing he wrote about Jesus is, the women, confused and terrified, run away and don't say anything to anyone. The end. Isn't that kind of strange? That is not what I would call a happy ending. I was expecting some closure. I was expecting some last words. I was expecting maybe some inspiration. Think about all the time and effort and energy and, and work that Mark has poured into his account, the earliest account of the life of Jesus. And this is how you end it? Scholars have developed some theories as to why Mark ends his gospel this way. Some believe 
that the last page, that Mark actually did write another page and that it was destroyed or lost. It's very possible. Other scholars believe that Mark was going to write another page or two and that he died. He was martyred before he had the chance to do that. And, uh, and still other scholars believe that Mark, Mark ended his gospel this way on purpose. Now I have my own theory. I have my own theory. I'd like to share with you this morning. I believe that during the early days after Mark completed his original manuscript, before any copies could be made, Peter was taking the manuscript. By the way, Peter is Mark's primary source material. Mark gets most of his history of Jesus from Peter. And I believe Peter was transporting the, the it would have been a codex, which is, a codex is just parchment pages held together by thread. That's what they had. And he was carrying it around from church to church, sharing the story with the New, New Testament uh, believers, stopping home from time to time on his way to another city. And I think one day Peter left the codex on the kitchen table, and the next morning during breakfast, one of Peter's kids spilled goat milk onto the, ruining the last page. And the reason I believe that is because this happens all the time in my house. Is this, this happens to some of you, doesn't it? You leave some um, important document or a bill or a permission slip or something on the kitchen table. You come down and it's like got butter on it. Or syrup or, ja- or jam. I have turned in so many formal documents to the government, my kids' school, to the church with, with stuff on them. That doesn't belong there. I don't think that any scholar would take me seriously on that. But honestly, honestly, this, most critics will agree that a happy ending is an offense to great art. Because it's not, it, happy endings don't reflect real life, do they? They just don't reflect real life. Real life is not full of happy endings. Real life is full of uncertainty and sad endings. Mark's ending is not neatly tied up with a bow and a glorified Jesus rising up into the clouds with inspiring last words. His ending is abrupt and ambiguous and forces us to ask some questions. Like, what are you going to do about that? That's the question. What are you going to do about the empty tomb? If this is all you have, what are you going to do? If Jesus is alive, what now? That's it. The end. We're supposed to walk away, I think, asking more. Some people do not like endings like this. There is too much left to the imagination. They can't handle it. That's the reason, by the way, you have verses 9 through 20. Some other uh, scribes couldn't help themselves. They couldn't leave it alone. They couldn't leave it the way it was. They had to meddle with it. And that's why we have verses 9 through 20. Now, there's nothing wrong with verses 9 through 20. It's a, great, it's a great ending. It's true. But it's not the way that Mark chose to end his account of Jesus' life. He doesn't end the story of Jesus with those words. He ends at verse 8. Mark's ending leaves us unsettled, doesn't it? And I wonder if that was the point. I really do. You see, none of Jesus' followers expected an ending like the one he gave them. None of them expected Jesus' disciples, and even the women, they all expected Jesus was going to be king. They all sincerely believed 
that eventually everybody would see that Jesus is the Messiah. And they would all worship him. And this movement would just keep growing and growing and growing until everyone in the world worshipped King Jesus. None of them expected him to die. None of them expected him to be raised from the dead. And even when they were confronted with the news that Jesus was alive, they did not breathe a sigh of relief. They did not jump for joy. They didn't immediately go around telling people about it. They didn't even find comfort in the news. They're confused and terrified because they weren't ready for that. It's, it's almost like, and actually we all know, and I bet the women were thinking this already. This is so much better than what we expected, but it's too good to be true. It's gotta be, it, it can't be true. They were afraid to believe it at this point. It's like a great TV show that leaves you in suspense, dying to see the next episode. We're supposed to walk away from the text that way, hungry for more, longing to know more about Jesus, more about his resurrection and his words and his life. You know, you know what's even more fascinating about this is Mark's was the first gospel ever written. There were no other gospel accounts to draw from yet unless you heard someone else tell the rest of the story. This is the only ending in writing that the church had for years. So imagine yourself, a first century follower of Jesus, you're reading this ending for the first time. Wait a minute, the women, they just went away afraid? They didn't talk to anybody? Did they see Jesus? Did the disciples meet up with him? Did anyone see Jesus? How do we know? Where are they now? I want to talk to them. I want to find out what happened. So what does this all mean? Throughout your own life, you will meet with endings you were not prepared for. Something will end suddenly, leaving you confused and uncertain or even scared about the future. It could be the end of a friendship. It could be the end of a job or a career. It could be the end of a ministry or a pregnancy or a marriage or the end of a life. You didn't expect it. You didn't see it coming. You weren't prepared for it. You didn't plan for it. So what do you do when that happens? What do we do? Well, you die. You die to your dreams. <laughs> you die to your ambitions. You die to whatever hopes you placed in that person or that dream or that thing. You die to yourself. That's what you have to do. Jesus said, you have to die to yourself. You have to die to all those things if you want to truly live. If you want to experience a new birth and a new life, the only way is death. And when you die, you will be raised to new life. And that life starts now. That resurrection power is experienced now. Do you know what the resurrection means more than anything? It means that God is faithful to his promises. That's what it means. God was talking about the resurrection of his Messiah for centuries before this. He was talking about overcoming sin. He was talking about being with his people for eternity. Since the beginning, 
So when you feel dead and buried, new life is right around the corner. That's what it means. God has promised us he will never leave us alone. He will never forsake us. He will never abandon us. He'll never turn his back on us. He'll never give up on us. He'll never stop changing us. He'll never stop chasing us. He'll never back out of the deal. He will never leave us alone in our exhaustion. He'll never leave us in our pain. He'll never leave us alone in our frustration and in our disappointment. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that this body is not the only body we will ever have. This life is not the only life we will ever live. This world is not the only world we will ever know. So you didn't get the ending you expected. That's okay. Life is like that. God is going to do that to us from time to time. Just don't forgive, don't forget this, please. Jesus, our Savior, was dead and buried. All of his friends turned away sadly and went on with their lives. So when you get, when you get an end you weren't ready for, don't be shocked. Don't be overcome with fear and sadness when you find yourself buried because it isn't the end of your story. Jesus is proof of that. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus through his blood, which was shed for us to cover our sin, to take away our guilt and shame, to be our advocate, to stand in your presence and say, This sinner belongs to me. He is your child, Father. He is my brother. Father, we thank you for the death of Jesus, but we thank you more for the resurrection. Because we know that Jesus died, death has died. Death no longer has any sting. It has lost. Death could not hold Jesus. It will not hold us. Your church, God, will be made radiant in your presence. And we will dwell with you forever. In the new world that is to come, when Jesus brings heaven to earth and everything is made new. Father, we praise you this morning and we give you thanks because of your many and great promises. Knowing that you are faithful. God, strengthen our hearts today. Increase our faith. Remind us of the victory that you won so that we will not be crushed by a bad ending. In Christ's name we pray, amen.